You're listening to the Upper Room Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit upperroomfrisco.com. Hey, hey, good morning, friends. It's wonderful to be together again to celebrate God as a family. I love this, this season. We're heading into uh, what I think is uh, equal with Easter being the greatest celebration, which is the incarnation, you know, Yahweh himself finding his way through a virgin into our world to reacquaint us with the heart of God again and offer up himself as the atoning, redeeming sacrifice that would reunite us with the Father. It's just an incredible time to celebrate. So I hope everybody had a good time at Thanksgiving and that you got to feast and fill your tummies with some of Earth's delights while you were filling your hearts with deep fellowship with one another. I know that we had a blast. We played kickball. I watched the Lions be horrible again. It's really hard. I mean, I grew up in Michigan. I wish I could just love the Lions, but uh, <laughs> anyway, it was, a, it was a great day. I hope you guys had a blast. Hey, um, during worship, I felt like the Lord reminded me of something that he showed me or taught me during worship many years ago, and um, it's this. I felt the presence of God come in a corporate gathering, and I began to ask God why he's here. And my intention or my motivation behind it was that I wanted to know what he wanted to do. Like, did he want to do words of knowledge? Did he want to do healing? Did he want to, like, sing us, you know, have us sing spontaneous songs? Because I grew up... Uh, being trained to make room for the Holy Spirit and then capitalize you know, on those moments when he comes. And so I asked the Lord, why are you here? But this time, he kind of threw it back at me with a little bit of sass. He was like, why are you here? And I was like, huh. I had to think about it, and I was like, well, I guess I'm here just to enjoy your presence. And he said, that's why I came too. I'm here to enjoy the presence of my kids. And it's from that place of enjoyment that the deepest transformation happens and the most powerful miracles happen. It's from that place of rest. It's, it's almost like when we, when we know that we're already seated in heavenly places, more powerful things happen than when, we're think, when we think we have to pray our way into heavenly places. Right? Have, have you guys ever had those moments where like God speaks to you and it messes up all of your theology? And then you can't even sing the same words to worship songs anymore because you're like, I think that, that line could be a little bit better, you know? And so, and you're just joyfully out there like singing your edited version of the worship song. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. So like today, like for instance, we were singing, would you keep me here until we're one? I started thinking, well, I'm already one, right? Now, I love that worship song. And so I just edited it while I was singing. Like, you know, I, I, I enjoy that you've made us one. You know, I, all I want is to know your heart. And thank you, Lord, you've made us one. Like, and, and then I began singing from heaven instead of singing in order to get into heaven. Does that make sense? Well, that's a little behind the scenes of how my brain works. Um, 
So in the last couple months, we've been talking about the foundation of the church, really starting, uh, Corey Russell started us off way back with uh, John 13 through 17, which is when Jesus is preparing the disciples for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and, and giving them these promises and these prayers to help them endure the, through this hard time, which would be his, his death. And um, them thinking that everything that they were believing in was all a sham and watching everything kind of fall apart and enduring through that season to see the outpouring pouring of the Holy Spirit. And then I've been bouncing around a little bit uh, throughout early church history. Anybody else in here love church history or just history in general? I, I highlighted a couple um, martyrs, and, and it's just been really fun. That stuff just lights my heart on fire. Um, and today, I wanted to talk about these early disciples and really what makes them think that they are worthy or qualified to be ambassadors of Jesus. And it reminded me of uh, this time, I, I used to teach this ministry school way back in the day, and I had a mother of one of the students email me, and she was upset in this email because she had heard some of my teachings where I had quoted a prophetic guy who had some moral failures over the course of his life that he had repented for, but it was a pretty big um, uh, situation, but I was quoting this prophetic guy. She heard the message, and then she emailed in, upset that I would quote someone like that. And guys, let me tell you, I got a little bit sassy. I wrote back because she said, "Why don't you just stick to the greats like Luther and Calvin?" <laughs> and I wrote back, and I said. I- I love Luther and Calvin. I really appreciate their contributions to Christianity. And I just, but I, and, and I think it's amazing how we can all overlook that they eventually turned into torturous murderers themselves who persecuted anyone who believed differently than them and actually killed someone <laughs> who opposed them. You know, but they're great guys. And, and I said, do you think that... Um, <laughs> And I asked, I was like, do you think that we should just throw out Proverbs and Song of Solomon? Because that guy ended up in a mess worshiping foreign gods with, you know, oodles of of ladies, you know, leading him astray. (laughs) Should we just throw out Proverbs because this guy ended up being a mess? Should we cancel that book? Should we cancel that person? Or... Are we able to actually see the the treasure that flows through them even though they are an incredible mess? Isn't it like God's favorite thing to do to turn these messes into messages? You know that old cliche? Put it on a pillow. I didn't trademark it, but (laughs) he loves to work with us. He loves us. We have these heroes in in scripture like Abraham who gave his wife to other men twice. Moses, who was a murderer, he had anger problems that lasted his entire life. Elijah, who at times was okay killing a whole bunch of people and at other times was just a coward. David, who was an adulterer and a murderer. His son Solomon, obviously we know that uh, he would be jailed today for the way that he treated women, right? And it's not just the Old Testament. You have Saul comes along. 
And he's literally a jihadist. He is killing Christians. He's on a holy war, murdering people and justifying it by scripture. And obviously we know his story, like he gets knocked off his donkey, sees Jesus, and has such an incredible trajectory in his life that this man who was a jihadist is now the one credited for writing half of the New Testament. I mean, how incredible is that? I think that it might be possible that in pursuit, in the pursuit of like our growth in character, we've overemphasized teachings on how like these horrible things in life change us for the better instead of emphasizing how we were made to change horrible things just as we are right now, regardless of how ready we think we are. And the question is like, is is God using the world to transform us or is God using us to transform the world? Guys, character is, is so important, but God's in charge of working those things out in us in his timing. I love that thing, that line that we were singing today, that we're just, we're, we're resting in his timing, trusting that he's got our best interest in mind and that we're, we're letting him mold us and shape us and change us. I, um, I love this verse where it says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. I was thinking about that this week and how um, often I'm trying to lift myself up into higher levels of spirituality and that usually ends up just with me getting humbled, right? But if I humble myself and I say, Lord, you're the only one who can do this, suddenly he's the one lifting me up. He's, he's the type of guy who just always wants to get as low as possible because if he can get as low as possible, it means he's underneath us, lifting us up to where he wants us to be, which is enjoying him in his presence, knowing that we are deeply loved exactly as we are. Has anyone in here ever gone into a, a season of like extreme self-focus and deep introspection to try to fix ourselves and come out encouraged at what you found in there? <laughs> no. It's, I mean, it's like, oh man, that's still in there. Oh, that's like, oh, nasty motivations. I mean, it's like a it's like a rat's nest of hair mixed up with like dry maple syrup. You know, you're <laughs> Rick Joyner said, uh, there are a thousand things wrong with you and the enemy is trying to get you to see them all at once. But God is patiently working on one at a time, maybe two. Again, I, I'm not giving us permission to like stay horrible, <laughs> but... I think what I want today is for us to walk out of here with these giant scissors in the spear, like Holy Spirit scissors that we use to cut ourselves some slack with. Open up to uh, Luke 9. We're going to look at the, uh, the guys upon whom our church is built. Luke 9, verse 1. This chapter is um, 
it's just chock full with these amazing moments and uh, revelations. And But at the beginning here, we see that <clears throat> Jesus is about to send out the 12. And he says, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So, this is verse six, they set out and went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Guys, this is a terrifying day for the enemy, right? This is a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and thieves walking around with more power than the emperor himself undoing the domain of darkness. These guys are shining light, and they were the ones who, who recently were bound up and owned by Satan. And here they are, walking around undoing everything that he has so painstakingly done for thousands of years, which is to bind up and afflict humanity. This is verse seven. These guys haven't been walking with the Lord that long. Like they, they are like fresh off the, the boat to perdition, so to speak, you know? Like they are newbies. And God has, Jesus has given them authority to do these amazing things. This is verse seven. Herod the Tetrarch heard about what was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see them. This reminds me of Acts 17, when the disciples are going around doing these amazing things, and the whole world is shaken uh, by these guys. And it says, uh, the leaders of this one city said, these who have turned the world upside down have come here Two. So Jesus and his disciples were moving in such crazy power that people had an easier time believing that a dead hero from of old had come back to life rather than just believing these ordinary people are able to move in such power. And then uh, the, the chapter continues. It's just amazing. Uh, they feed the 5,000 and again, Jesus uses the disciples to do it. And then Peter, he's got the confession uh, you know, that Jesus is the Messiah. It's, again, you can just like camp out in this chapter for so long, but I wanted to um, hang out in the transfiguration for a while. This is Luke 9.28. Y'all know that Matthew, that uh, James, Luke, and John were Jesus' like, closest friends. Obviously, he had, at times, hundreds of disciples following him. And then he had the 12 who were closest to him. And then uh, Peter, James, and John, they have like this 
this extra special closeness. They get to be included in some of these moments with Jesus. And this is one of those. This is Luke 9:28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. How cool would that be, right? You're just hanging out with your buddy and all of a sudden he starts to transform in front of you. That would be alarming, right? And Jesus, it said that he had no like natural beauty that we should think anything special about him. Like he was just a normal looking dude, right? And then all of a sudden his face is shining like lightning. His, his clothes are bright as a flash of lightning. The appearance of his face changed. He's like morphing in front of them. And it's like he's showing them that he, he's had all of this glory all along. And he's starting to just peel back the veil. And these guys are getting this behind the scenes look. And then all of a sudden, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus and they spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. All right, this is getting crazier. This is like a grade A spiritual encounter. Like these guys can write a bunch of books about this, right? They can go on the speaking circuit. Because Moses and Elijah have come out of the great cloud of witnesses to hang out with transfigured Jesus on a mountain, and they get to see this with their open eyes. Anybody think like it would be cool to be there in that moment? This is uh, Moses and Elijah. They're, they're not just like these heroes or figures in the Old Testament. They're actually representative figures of the Old Testament. They are essentially like, they, they represent the law and the prophets. So Moses represents the law. He's the embodiment of the law, and Elijah is the quintessential prophet. And so in this moment, they had the law and the prophets and Jesus together. And then Peter, oh, Peter, starts talking. Oh, I love verse 32. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when when they became fully... uh, But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus said, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. So Peter, in this moment, he sees the law, the prophets, and Jesus on the mountain together. And what he wants to do is create an equal place for all three. He's trying to, like, he's saying it's good that we're all here. Let me create a place for each one of you. This is verse 34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. So again, you've got the law, the prophets, and Jesus on the mountain, and Peter's thinking the best thing to do in this moment is to create an equal place for all three. God interrupts that thinking and says, no, this is my son. Listen to him. And as soon as he said it, the law and the prophets were gone, and the only one left on the mountain was Jesus. 
And it was like God was putting his endorsement stamp on, he's saying that Jesus didn't come to pave the way for the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets came to pave the way for Jesus. And Moses and Elijah's final witness was to actually appear and hand off the vision to the one who could complete it. See, it's in Jesus that the the goal of the law and the dreams of the prophets is fulfilled. Jesus even said in his ministry uh, at the beginning, he said that he wasn't going to abolish the law and the prophets. He was going to fulfill them. He was going to fill them to the full. This is uh, Luke 9.37. Let's keep reading on. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great cloud met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Really cool moment, right? Jesus showing his deep love and compassion for this child and again showing the kingdom invading. Uh, Look at uh, Luke 9.46. Right after this, uh, there arose a reasoning among them as to which one was the greatest. Seems like an interesting time to have a debate about who's the most powerful when no one in that crowd could kick out the demon except for Jesus, right? And remember, at the beginning of this chapter, uh, Jesus had just sent out the 12 to go and heal people of all sorts of diseases and cast out demons. And so when it says there arose a reasoning among them, it, means that it actually means that they're having a logical debate as to which one is more powerful, which one is more worthy to be considered the greatest in the kingdom. And I bet what they're doing is talking about like all the, the ministry that they went out and did. They're, they're talking about like what actually qualifies them, like what level of miracles they're able to operate in that makes them more qualified than other people. It'd be like if, you know, the... the Upper Room Frisco leadership team, like we went on a, on a mission trip and we came back and or we're just like debriefing in the hotel afterwards and, and I just start talking and I'm like, guys, you wouldn't believe it. I pulled a crippled guy out of a wheelchair today onto healthy legs. He gave his life to Jesus. Uh, so it's clear that I'm greater than you in the kingdom. And then Alexis is like, Jeremy, that is truly remarkable. And I praise God that his, powerful is, his power is working in you. But when I was out preaching, I laid hands on a blind man, and he got up screaming, I can see, I can see. But the cool thing is, is he didn't have eyeballs when I started praying. <laughs> so it's clear that uh, I'm greater than you in the kingdom. And then uh, old Nancy Clark, she finally chimes in. And Nancy, she's so humble. She's like, guys, I'm... I'm astounded at the power of God working in you, and I'm actually humbled to be part of this crew. But when I was out ministering, I saw this quadriplegic child, and I, and I laid hands on him, and he stood up, and visible light began to emanate from my body. 
People like stopped what they were doing. They gathered around. They shut down all the shops while I called out words of knowledge. And 3,100 people gave their lives to Jesus, which is 100 more than Pentecost, which <laughs> means that... <laughs> means that I'm the greatest in the kingdom, but I mean, it's, it's great to be co-laboring with you. <laughs> These, this is Jesus' disciples reasoning about who, why they think they are more qualified to be called the greatest in the kingdom. Now, what kind of behavior would you call that? <laughs> Narcissism over there. Yeah, arrogance, self-promotion, pride. Um, has, has anyone in here ever had the Lord rebuke you for, for your pride before? Well, let's see what Jesus did in this moment. This is Luke 9:47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, put him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the greatest. Did he rebuke them? What did, what did they want to be? They wanted to be the greatest, right? What did Jesus tell them how to be? He showed them how to be the greatest. And so instead of rebuking them, he actually told them the path to the very thing that they wanted, which is to take the lowest route possible. See, Jesus knew that to get the highest name, you had to take the lowest way. Let's read on. Luke 9, 49. As Jesus was uh, giving this incredible teaching about how to be great in the kingdom, John interrupts him and says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we stopped him because he does not follow with us. <laughs> okay, so at this point, I, if I were Jesus, I'd be like, all right, John, sit down with me for a minute, buddy. Um, Demonology 101. Demons in people, bad. <laughs> Getting demons out of people, good. <laughs> we want the demons out of people, John. <laughs> but John's like, he's not one of us. He, we don't know who this guy is. He, he's, he can't be operating in the things that we're operating in. It's, it, this is our deal. This is our shtick. This is our ministry. You would think that... Uh, he should be rebuked for something like that. Wouldn't you call that kind of behavior like territorialism, jealousy, elitism, control? So this is what Jesus does. Jesus said to him, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Guys, this is the disciple of love. John the Beloved, who is... In this moment, he's, he's actually manifesting something that's been there for a, for a long, long time. He, that insecurity, he, and he finally has this place where he's part of the A-team, right? And his identity in this moment, even though he's, he's in the process of being healed, his identity in this moment is still wrapped up in what he does for, for God. And when he sees someone stepping into his territory, he gets defensive and, and insecure about it. But Jesus didn't rebuke him. He just said, don't stop him. He's not against us. Let's read on. This is Luke 9, 51. As time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him 
who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Pause. Uh, Just real quick, there's a lot of racial animosity between the Samaritans and the Israelites. And and so the Samaritans don't like Jews, Jews don't like Samaritans. And so when Jesus needed to pass through the region of Samaria, they were not welcoming to him at all. This is verse 54. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> so they're they're like, okay, Jesus, uh, we know what to do here. You know that power that you gave us to go and like love people. Can we go ahead and use that to just turn them into crispy critters right now? Like we'll just wipe these guys off. Let me do you this favor. Like we got to get rid of these guys. <laughs> so what kind of behavior would you call that? Rage, murder, racism? You'd think that someone would be rebuked for this, like that Jesus would really like bring the hammer, go after their character, capitalize on this moment to deliver them of this nasty stuff, just hold up the mirror in front of them and show them how nasty they are, right? This is what Jesus does. He says... He actually turned and rebuked them. Thank God, it's finally time. And he says, you don't know what spirit you're of. You don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He didn't even go after their character. He showed them that they'd been tricked bamboozled by this spirit that had been part of their lives this whole time. See, if, if I were Jesus in this moment, I would think, well, this is, I would you know, set my, my A-team down because they're just falling apart, right? They're manifesting pride, arrogance, elitism, racism, and now murder. And I would sit them down and I'd be like, guys, um, we got to go back to the early scrolls. Like we're gonna, do, we're gonna. It's time for a restoration process. We're gonna spend three months just going back over the basics. And really, I blame myself. I empowered you too soon, you know. But Jesus, I actually, um, I think he's starting to get excited because, well, just just look what he does next. Um, just flip over. So he gives this cool little teaching about foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But right after this, this is uh, chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him into every town and place where he was about to go. So Jesus was so excited about the results of empowering these 12, he goes and finds 72 that he's had less time with and gives them his power also so that they can can go out and represent him to the world, making messes all over the place, right? Is it possible that... Maybe Jesus was getting really excited 
because these guys were finally getting to a place where they're freed up enough, where they trust him enough, where they feel enough love that they're manifesting everything that they had for years hidden deep within. They're finally in a community where they know their friends aren't gonna give up on them, Jesus isn't gonna give up on them, and so all those things that were messy inside of them, they're forgetting how to keep them hidden. Like that ability to keep it stuffed down is falling apart because they are encountering the most accepting, loving, and gentle person that they had ever met who thinks the world of him. Oh, and he's God in the flesh. You know, at the end of David's life, he, he writes this psalm. And in, the, in, in this psalm, he talks about what's made him great. And King David, he's obviously a champion, warrior, and strategic leader, and, and worshiper, and poet, and like all this stuff. He's got all of these gifts, all of these trophies, so to speak, in his life. And when David says, what's made him great? He says, it is your gentleness that has made me great. Because he encountered a God that didn't give up on him no matter what. And that's what these guys are encountering. They were losing their ability to hide. They forgot how to keep a holy face on things. And it's in that kind of environment that they're actually being delivered. Is it possible that maybe we've bought into an image of Jesus as being like this harsh rebuker and like harsh disciplinarian when actually he is more patient and kind and gentle than we could ever imagine? Here's a cool little side note. Who's the guy that uh, later on wrote, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because a man's anger doesn't bring about the righteousness of God? James, the guy they wanted to call down fire. Who wrote about taming the tongue? James. Who wrote about how meaningless quarrels come from our own selfish desires? James. He got so delivered of the things that he was manifesting that the Lord allowed him to write eternal scriptures that we would be delivered after him. Who wrote about how if anyone says they love God but hate a person, they're a liar and God's love isn't in them? John. He wrote, uh, how can we say that we love God who is unseen when we can't love a person who is seen? See, Jesus' leadership, his gentle, patient leadership worked so well that these guys that manifested the worst things in the world were entrusted now with writing the eternal scriptures for our benefit. They got so delivered that they now have so much power on their words that we're able to be delivered just by reading of their testimony. Why did the disciples act like that that day? Why did Peter, James, and John act like such buffoons? I think it had something to do with the night before. Who was on the mountain the night before? Moses right? This guy who has anger problems. This guy who has used the law to put people in their place. Who else was on the mountain the night before? Elijah. Elijah, famous for calling down fire from heaven and killing people. So these disciples encounter all of these situations the next day, and they begin to manifest Moses and Elijah instead of Jesus. 
And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not like that. You don't know what spirit you're of right now. I didn't come to destroy lives, but to save them. See, Moses, in uh, Numbers chapter 20, we find out the thing that keeps him out of the promised land. And it's this incredible story. Um, I'm just going to go through it real quick, but they had been walking for days. They had no water. This whole, the whole nation of Israel was about to die from thirst. They, they come to um, this place where there's a rock, and the people are grumbling, saying, like, we're going to die again, and yada, yada, yada. Why don't we just go back to you know, Egypt for at least we had water there, you know, so to speak. And so the Lord, you know, Moses talks to the Lord, and the Lord says, hey, go speak to that rock, and I'll cause water to come out of it, right, so that the people can drink. God in that moment could have said, oh, these grumbling people, they think they need water? <laughs> you know, how dare they think they need water to survive? <laughs> but no, 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 God says to Moses, go speak to that rock and I'll cause water to come out of it so that everyone can drink. And so what does Moses do? He grabs his staff, which represents like his authority, his gifting, this supernatural staff that's been with him throughout this whole journey, right? And he gathers the nation and it says, hear now, you rebellious grumbling people, shall I now make water come forth from this rock for you? And he strikes the rock twice with a staff. And what happens? Water comes out and the people are able to drink. I'm sure it was like an amazing moment for the nation, but God calls Moses aside and he says something to him and he says, because you didn't uphold me as holy before my people, you're not gonna be able to enter the promised land. All God wanted to do was give his kids something to drink. Moses stood up in front of that thirsty nation and portrayed God as impatient and angry, striking the rock with his gifting it's like, it's, a, it's as if like we're, the, the rock is our heart. And we come at our hearts like Moses and we're commanding water to come forth and we're speaking horribly to our own hearts. And Jesus comes along and is like, no, 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 no. And he begins speaking gently to our hearts, causing water to flow forth. But what Moses did in this moment is he portrayed God as angry when God wasn't angry. He made God look like he was a jerk to his own people. And that was the thing that kept him out of the promised land. And this is a really um, sad moment for Moses, and I'm sure it broke God's heart to discipline Moses like this, but you know what? God had a restoration plan for even Moses that far exceeds him seeing the natural promised land. Because a day would come where Moses is just kicking it in the great cloud of witnesses, and the Lord's like, hey, I got something for you to do. And all of a sudden, he comes through the veil of Christ's flesh, and he's standing there, and he sees Peter, James, and John, and he's glowing in splendor. And Moses, who wanted to enter the physical promised land, got to stand on a mountain again and see the promised land himself. His name's Jesus. And in that moment... He got something better than he could have ever hoped for, ever thought possible. He got to minister to God. He actually, it says that they spoke to Jesus concerning his death and resurrection, which was about to take place, which means I think that they came to encourage Jesus. 
They came to serve him, just like always. See, Jesus came and he wasn't acting anything like Moses or Elijah. But people tried to get him to look like Moses. They tried it all the time. They dragged that woman caught in adultery before him and said, hey, it's in Moses' law that she's supposed to die. What do you say? Does he act like what the law of Moses would command him to act like? No. It's that incredible moment where Jesus is so excited because not only is this woman about to be delivered, but all these people. See, what, what the Pharisees and religious leaders didn't know is that when they thought they were dragging her out of her bed of adultery, they were dragging themselves out of adultery to the feet of Jesus to have an encounter with his mercy. So I want to go back to that question that I asked at the beginning. Is is God using the world to transform us or is God using us to transform the world? We know that God made the world and then he put man in it so that we could make it look like heaven, make it look like paradise. The original intention may have been delayed and sidetracked, but Jesus came to reclaim it. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. He empowered us to co-labor with God to transform the world and make it look like heaven. That is the, the, the new prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the kingdom gets to come through us, messy, broken, in process, us. So instead of micromanaging our process of trying to get better, what if we just looked at Jesus long enough to forget what our own belly buttons look like? (laughs) Stop all this navel gazing and look at the one who has the power to transform us just by looking at him. See, religion is based entirely on believing that there is a separation or distance between us and God and the things that we have to do to close that gap are on us. But Jesus came closer than we ever thought possible and irrevocably joined us, united us with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the divine romance. We are so wrapped up in divine communion with the Trinity right now. He empowered people who had zero discipleship time to be his ambassadors because he knew that the power of his love was going to be the thing that transformed them as they walked along with him. I just don't want us to fall into the deception that the Galatians fell into. Obviously, Paul talks to them and says, you know, are you so foolish to believe that this thing that was started in you by the spirit that you can finish in the power of your flesh? Are you going to finish yourself? Are you going to perfect yourself? Or, or can you just humble yourself and enjoy the fact that I'll never give up on you and that's the love that will transform you? I think that um, my favorite moments in worship almost every single time is God just delivering me of all of my empty attempts to fix myself. Anybody relate to that? And I feel his affection regardless. And and I realize that um, there's no amount of pressing in to be done anymore. 
The most confident, spiritually mature people I know, they don't get loud and try to press in because they know they're already seated there. What would happen if we didn't press in, but we just lean back into the arms of his love? Can we stand together and pray? Father, thank you for delivering us of all of our mess, all of our stinking thinking. Thank you, God, that you're so patient, so kind. Thank you that you showed us the Father through the person of Jesus. Jesus, we love you. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't leave us even when you left us. You sent the Holy Spirit, and now all of God, we have you. We have the helper. We have our best friend, Holy Ghost. Thank you that your power is at work within us. Ask God that during this season, we would uh, realize incredible revelations and, and teachings and about the incarnation and how you came so close to us when we were trying our best to get close to you. Thank you, Jesus. Ask God that this church, we would, you would actually realize your intentions and hopes for a church in this room, God. That you would get everything that you paid for, that all of your inheritance would be realized in this church, Lord, that you would make us one as you, Jesus, and the Father are one. Father, that we would just realize that we are connected to you. Father, and that you would deliver us and save us from any trap of the Galatians and thinking that we have to perfect ourselves before we can be used. We love your presence, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Amen.